What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this episode, I'm actually quite excited because this is my interview with Tristan Oliver. Tristan was the DP for Isle of Dogs, and he was also the DP for one of my favorite stop-motion projects, which is Wallace and Gromit. So I was very excited to interview him about his work. He also, if you go online, you can check this out. He also directed the behind-the-scenes VR for Isle of Dogs. He's done some amazing work throughout the last 30 years, mostly in stop-motion as well as in commercials. So he's got this very unique resume that really sets him apart from a lot of DPs. Our focus for this interview is Isle of Dogs, so he gives us some insight into how he tackles some of the lighting issues in Isle of Dogs. With that said, here's my interview with Tristan Oliver. So how did you get involved with Isle of Dogs? Well, that was quite an easy one, really, because I'd shot Fantastic Mr. Fox. I already had that relationship there with Wes, and he is very much a director who likes to keep his people about him, I think, as you can see from his you know, repeated use of the same actors. So I think once you have established trust, then he's very keen to sort of carry on with the same group of people. So uh, it, it was because I'd done Fox that I got Isle of Dogs, really. So how do you establish that trust with the director? Because you've been working with Nick Park several times. You've worked with many directors several times. So how do you establish that trust with them? Well, I mean, I think I think I'm a reasonably safe pair of hands from a professional point of view. You know, I mean, I know what I'm doing. So I think people tend to employ me to do that. But I think the more complicated part of that question is how do you get on with different directors? And actually, the answer is you don't always get on with them all the time. You know, there's always a lot of friction. And I guess the thing to do is just to make sure that, you know, at the end of the day, everyone shakes hands and makes art. (laughs) You know, I mean, it is, it's a long and reasonably brutal process making one of these movies because it does take, you know, in excess of two years. So you are, you know, you all have to live with the same people for a long time. And I guess it's as much to do with holding your tongue (laughs) and kind of, you know, facing it out sometimes as it is to do with anything else but uh, you know overall I have I have pretty good relationships with my directors you know we're often on the same page creatively and so it sort of comes from that you know Wes is a different quantity because as an auteur the process is far less proactive it is more reactive you know so he is driving everything to extreme levels of detail. So, you know, the normal sort of creative collaboration perhaps isn't there as much with him. Well, I guess that brings up the question of when you get the script, what do you look for? Like when you got Isle of Dogs, what did you look for? And how do you sort of figure out and work with Wes to get on the same page? Well, I think for me, what makes a good script, and this sounds, you know, flippant, but it isn't, you know, what, what makes a good script is if I can sit down to read it and get up when I finished it. But if I have to stop or if I have to, you know, take a break, make a cup of tea and come back to it, then it's normally not flowing off the page. So if I read it in one sitting without feeling any level of it being a chore, then that immediately puts me onto it. And I have to say the script for Isle of Dogs was very good. And it came with 10 minutes of animatic as well, which was one of the most coherently well-drawn animatics I've ever seen because it was all drawn by one hand and um you know Wes had obviously sort of directed that very closely so it was it was from the word go quite exciting to see that 
you know, on paper. Yeah. And then from that, you know, you start to think about what your visual influences are. And on a sort of non-WES movie, that would be me going out and sourcing visual references that I thought were relevant to the project and showing them to the director and saying, what about this? What about this? And us sort of kicking stuff backwards and forwards. And with WES, it's about WES showing me loads of stuff saying, this is what it's got to look like, you know, make it so really. (laughs) Well, I noticed in interviews that I researched, you watched a lot of Japanese films because, you know, thinking back to when I studied film, you know, I did a cinematography course and it would be like, here's a famous painting, recreate the lighting in it. So did Wes bring in photos and paintings from Japanese history as well? Um, Not as much. I mean, I think the sort of art influences, if you will, were more driven by Japanese woodcuts. And they are, you know, they have that very specific style that is actually unlit. They are blocks of colour and fine line detailing. And although you might have an illustration of a moon or a sun, it's very rarely actually contributing to the illumination. What you see is more about colour and shape than about directional light. And I think it would be fair to say that there's not much directional light in a lot of oriental art. It is more about shape and color and texture. When you kind of see that in the opening sequences with the woodcut style, so how do you light something that doesn't rely on lighting? (laughs) Yeah, that's the question I ask myself every day. I mean, but (laughs) especially for the exteriors, you know, Wes was very keen on not having any directional light at all and just wanted this kind of flat void really this sort of heavily overcast void and that really entails wrapping the set up in bounce boards and you know overhead silks and things and just making all the light non-directional so everything is bounced in and sometimes it's bounced in twice to make it even flatter still it can actually never be flat enough for Wes I think he kind of wants it illuminated without it being illuminated that, that can be quite, what's the word? I mean, not so much frustrating, but it's, you, you know, that kind of lighting for animation is very much something that I think chimes with a much earlier children's series aesthetic, which is something that we were sort of running from fast and furiously when I got into this game. You know, we were actively looking for a way to make animation look more cinematic. And one of the ways we did that was actually to tend towards more naturalistic lighting techniques, more cinematic lighting techniques, and to sort of revert to that rather childlike lighting system felt a bit backward to me. But then, you know, you kind of get to jazz a bit more on the interiors, which have a lot more shape and and style to them. So how did you differentiate your approach between the interiors and the exteriors, just with less flat lighting, or what else was involved in that? Well, there's a lot more variety of texture and structure on the interiors, and there's a lot more practical lighting. So, you you know, there's a lot of visible lanterns and, you know, little torches and things like that, which play in, which, again, Wes is very fond of that as an interior look. You know, he likes a, a tiny dot of light just randomly placed somewhere in the picture you know he'll send me a note going can I have three points of light in the back of the ambulance please you know or something like this he's gonna have to create this um this rather sort of contrived setup so you know the interiors are a little bit more fun and also because they're contained by walls generally actually flat lighting them doesn't really do much for them you know they become almost two-dimensional if you do that so we did have a bit more freedom 
in that department. Now, you mentioned that he might send something back saying, you know, we need three lights in the ambulance. Is there a lot of, I guess, technically it's reshooting, but you're still shooting the original stuff. Is there a lot of sort of back and forth with the editing team and what have you to get the lighting the way Wes wants it? How do you approach that? Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, the amount of back and forth depends on how close we hit it first time, really. But I think what you need to understand is that we wouldn't shoot anything until he was absolutely happy with how stuff looked. So, you know, a typical setup would be the set would come in, the set would be dressed, and then it would be lit, and any motion control would be worked out, and the camera would go in, and then we would start sending test frames to Wes. And then when he was happy with what he was seeing in terms of dressing and lighting, then the animator would do a very sort of quick, rough rehearsal. And so he would then see whether the animation was working in that environment, and he would be adjusting all the way along. And then only when he was absolutely happy would we actually embark on the animation proper. Because what you don't want is for your animator to have to reshoot because of a technical issue. The, the, really the only legitimate reason to reshoot anything is if there's an animation problem. So everything has to be right for the animator. And, and because of that, we don't start until Wes is happy and he will sort of say, you know, let's do it now. And off we go and we do it now. He wouldn't stop something halfway through and say, let's go back and have another go at this. Well, the reason I brought that up is, you know, I've seen Pixar's workflow and I know it's a distinctly different animation process, but they would constantly go back and forth and change things. They refer to it as a wagon wheel approach. So like it goes out to one person, comes back in, goes back out to the next person. And so they're constantly revising. So that's why I sort of was wondering if it was going back and forth like that yeah i think the essential difference whenever you're animating in a computer is it is a layering process and you are building up strata of finish if you like and you know there are several points at which you can leave what you've done and say that's it but then if you want to just polish it a bit more detail a bit more you can keep adding those pieces in whereas what stop frame is stop frame is very much more like live action which is you know you you point the camera at the set with the actor on it and you shoot that shot. And if anything is wrong, it's not a question of just rendering, re-rendering it with a small detail change. That's the difference because you're actually shooting. Whereas in, in the computer, you're not really shooting. You're just constantly updating your renders in order to finesse what you're doing. Whereas that all has to be done prior to shooting in stop frame and live action. Now, there was a lot of sets on this. There was 44 units going at one point, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. How do you maintain consistency across all those sets? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that compared with what I had at Leica, that was fairly modest. I mean, I think we went to 56 at Leica. Oh, wow. But yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I do it in a number of ways. Well, one, I, I take the lion's share of the best stuff for myself. So <laughs> of those 40-odd units, I'm typically handling between 13 to 15 of them, actually hands-on, you know, gloves on, up ladders, sort of getting them right. And then I have another couple of guys who light for me, but everything they do comes past me, and that will consist of my briefing them prior to their lighting. It would be me popping in, to see what they're doing, them calling me in to make sure stuff is right, them sending me frames, me sitting with them in the projection theater and looking at those frames just to make sure that we're all on the right page because you're right, it needs to look as if I did it all. Um, but the guys I'm using to do that are people I've worked with for years and they know 
that they are going to have to take direction. And, you know, typically they work as independent cinematographers, but they come on board and they know that I'm going to say, okay, James, we've got to do it like this. I know this is going to hurt, but this is how it has to be. (laughs) Otherwise, this bit of the film becomes your bit rather than Wes's bit. So it has to be house style. And, you know, they're used to that. So they buckle down and do it. But But I have the top down view across the whole film and it's up to me to keep it looking coherent. Now, one scene that, I mean, there's lots of scenes that stood out for me, but one of the scenes that stood out just because of the amount of little lights in it and what have you was the laboratory scene. So I'm wondering how you tackled shooting that sequence of sort of sliding along and revealing different things with the serum. Well, I mean, the initial build of the set was big enough. I mean, I think that set was near enough 30 feet long. And then after the build, that went to my practical electricians who just sat and soldered for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. So every single light fitting obviously has to be wired in. And then that all goes back to dimmers. And I think we had over well over a hundred separate channels of dimming on that set, which meant that pretty much every individual light, but I mean, some pairs, some sets of four or five could all be dimmed separately. Um, but we also have this process which which has just come in in the last few years whereby we can actually take different lines of exposure. So, you know, the animator will move the puppet and then take a frame and then the computer will change the lighting and take the frame again. And then it will change the lighting and take the frame again and it will change the lighting and it will take the frame again. And it will keep doing that for as many times as we've programmed it. So there's something like the laboratory where no one was really entirely sure what the final product was going to look like because you know not all decisions had been made if you will we were taking i think on that we took 18 separate lines of exposure so that that could then be taken into edit into the post-production process and all those flashes bangs and lighting effects could be built from a kit of parts rather than being baked in up front now Some people would argue, and I may well be amongst those people, that had we sat down and worked out what we wanted to do at the beginning, that would all have been a lot quicker. And, you know, people would have been forced into making up their mind, which I think isn't a a bad thing. But obviously, now that everything is digital, all choice is thrown to the end of the production process and is thought about at a later date. And that is actually, I think, quite a sad thing that that now happens. You know, back in the day, if there was a if there was a flash of lightning, we shot a flash of lightning at the point in the script where it was appropriate. And now you'll shoot that flash of lightning on every single frame and also without the flash of lightning and then decide where you're going to put it. You know, it sort of takes a bit of organics out of the process, I think. Well, it almost takes out the, you know, thinking back to shooting on film, there might be some kind of mistake or something that happens that you see in the film after you developed it. Like you said, there's an organic yeah. life to it on set. Exactly. Yeah. You know, on Curse of the Rabbit, you know, which is a case in point, there's all kinds of kind of flashes and bangs and flashes and storms and things like that. It was all done in camera. It was all, you know, we used to stand on set kind of doing it verbally, you know. So I'd stand there with my gaffer and we'd go, you know, how does lightning go? It kind of goes... and then we kind of audio record that and then break it down into frames and then convert that into spikes on the lighting you know and then shoot a little test and see how it works and and now you can just endlessly fiddle at exactly the point in the movie where you have least time which is at the end (laughs) (laughs) well i guess this kind of brings one of my questions which was 
you know, you shot a lot of things flat, but then when it went to New York for grading, more saturation was added and brought up. So in terms of the colors and the lighting, how do you determine what's going to be done on set and what's going to be done in the DI? In general, you shoot with a view to what you will do in the DI. So the DI is, if you like, the polishing process. You know, it is, for me, normally, 30% of the job. You know, I, I shoot for two years and then I DI for six weeks. But that DI is me sitting in a dark room, finally being able to get a proper look at everything we've shot and just gently bringing it all together and creating a feel and a look for it that sits on top of that original footage. So that is the normal and joyous process of DI. And it is joyous because, you know, the range of adjustment that one has now is so fabulous compared with RGB film timing. You know, it can be a real joy. Well, I do have one last question that I'd like to ask everyone in an interview, and that's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Well, any kind of film. Well, like a guilty pleasure one that you normally wouldn't watch, but, you know, if it's on television, you would just leave it on and watch it. Not the most popular films, but something you enjoy. Oh, goodness, there's so many. Um, I'm a massive fan of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, that's a great one. I, yeah. I love that movie. I'm very fond of The First Matrix. I mean, if we're just talking really good, fun films to watch that aren't necessarily artistically fabulous. Uh, yeah, definitely Ferris Bueller. Yeah, there's a few films out there that I like that everyone kind of raises an eyebrow at. There's many, many films that I absolutely hate that everyone thinks are fantastic, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for letting me interview. You're welcome. So that was my interview with Tristan. I'd like to thank Tristan for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Carly McKeating for cutting this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>